So we're approaching Dollar Bay. It's tall. It's like a cascade of water rippling down towards the dock. And down here, little paddle boards, uh, canoes, and the sound of construction as big work goes on putting up towers on the other side of Docklands. So we spotted Kate Heron and asked her what she thought. She lives around here. This was an area that was a working dock when I arrived, full of ships coming and going, cranes working, lots of uh, stuff being shipped to places around the world. It was very dramatic looking, so we could see from our house straight in the West India Dock. And in the distance you could see the post office tower and um, St Paul's. So actually, you know, in miniature, no big blocks at all in the way. So it's changed a great deal. We're here to meet Rachel Huff of Simpson Huff as part of Reba J Meets. Please speak. Hey, if you'd like to come in. Bye. Door is open. Door is open. So we've walked into the flat and straight away we're confronted with a wall of glass and louvers that open up so that you can see and hear everything that's going on. So in the summer, I can imagine it, you get a gentle breeze coming through and a sense of everything going on outside in the Docklands. Up here, you can see why they've made City Living their business. We're gonna hear from Ian Simpson and Rachel Huff about the day of the Manchester bomb and how it changed their practice from tiny projects that they were making up themselves into major ones. This is Reba J Meets. Welcome to Reba J Meets, Ian and Rachel. So the first thing I have to ask is, what other practices do you compare yourselves to? And, and has that changed over the years? And in terms of practices, in, um, I greatly admire Foster, for example, in terms of um, the consistency of output and quality. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, there's obviously that generation ahead of us, 20 years older than, than we are, um, which includes Foster and, and Rogers, and um, you know I worked at Foster's in my youth, and um, but now the practices I guess AHMM, uh, you know Simon and Paul I, we know very well DRMM, and some of the younger practices like Gort Scott that we're working in collaboration with on on projects and bids. That's Primarily very London. Where you talk about it, so it's not like well, these are the people we're up against to get the jobs. It's it's much more a kind of friendly. Well, actually, we have we have worked very successfully with other practices and enjoyed that collaboration and enjoyed the contribution of ideas and thought um, to the end product. So it's it it is a really kind of great synergy to work yeah. in that yeah. way, and we do encourage it and look to achieve it and actually have initiated it on a number of occasions. I mean, in, 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 in um, Edinburgh, we've got Reich and Hall, who we work closely with and bid for and are actually working on a project for... Um, University of Central Lancashire. In we Preston, which is just coming to completion. And similarly, we won the bid to do the Manchester College with a Sheffield-based practice called Bond Bryan, who have the experience in, in that field. Again, complementary working together. There's no competition as such. Manchester and tall glass buildings are the things you're best known for by the people who don't really know you. We're going to find out a bit, <laughs> a bit more in depth, yeah. I hope. Yeah. Um, but first, let's start with Manchester and start with tall buildings. We've talked about city living. Yeah. Um, you both live in your own buildings. I'm really fascinated by that. Uh, Rachel, 
about that? Is it is it all about city living? Is it about sights and sounds of the city, or is it about kind of hiding away in little eerie? I think it's about all of that, actually. Yeah, I live in Number One Deansgate, which is a project which established the benchmark for city living in Manchester after the the bomb of 1996. So uh, Number One Deansgate completed in 2002 at the same time as the Commonwealth Games, and it was a really key point for the city in terms of its development. Ian and myself were very keen to be part of that, both in terms of contributing built form but also actually living the dream as it were yeah yeah, yeah. So, so tell us it's about great. living the dream it, tell us it's about great. living the dream in manchester yeah then. no it's 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 interesting because number one deansgate has traits that um we we have carried through in a number of our projects it has a quite a large buffer zone or winter garden um continuous um semi-enclosed semi-internal external space which wraps the building it's a fully glazed building and although it's fully glazed right in the center of quite an aggressive edgy environment with that sort of space that buffer zone you feel actually quite protected and there's a layering and a subtlety to the facade so it allows you to expand into that space in the summer and make the most of that space and open up to the air into the city and in the winter, you can retract and, you know, snuggle back and retreat. Ian, you live even higher, don't you? Yes, I do for my uh, failings. I, I used to live in number one, Deansgate, not in the penthouse that Rachel lives in. But when we, when we got the commission to do the Beetham Tower, I decided at that point, rightly or wrongly, that I was going to live at the top of the building and um, managed to negotiate a deal with the Beethams to buy the top two floors and then do as many architects do, they do their own fit-out. And uh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the worst thing you can possibly do because you just spend twice as much as you should do and it takes twice as long. So it actually took two years to do the fit-out of the apartment. You've got an olive grove up there. I have, you? and it's a beautiful space. I'm very, very lucky to have a space at level 47 and 48. To the south of, of um, the building on, on the levels below, there, there are winter gardens, as, as Rachel's mentioned, at Deansgate. At the top, that winter garden becomes a garden. So it's a 4,000-square-foot garden with olive grove in it and oak trees and reflecting pools and other things. So it's a bit of outside, inside. Um, Is that sort of city living for everyone? I mean, you're building a lot of places that people live in. Yeah. And that's a very uh, privileged version of it. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, it's anybody can have it. They've just got to spend a lot of money to buy it, unfortunately. But um, there are lots of apartments at the tops of these buildings where they could do exactly the same thing. And in many buildings now, we're creating communal gardens on the roofs. So they aren't dedicated to one particular apartment. But the market is is slowly changing more to ownership, owner-occupiers and families and larger space. I have a family in my apartment, so, and beneath me, Phil Neville used to have a, an apartment with his family, and he created a special apartment underneath. It's not as popular, obviously, as a standard two-bed apartment, because a lot of people are not used to living in the city with a family. They think they have to move out of the city to the to the wealthy suburbs of Cheshire. So do you think that do you think that some of your buildings could convince the people on lower incomes to to enjoy living in the city in that way? I think definitely. I think um, as we start to intersperse communal spaces and amenity, uh, whether it's on the building or at ground floor, 
I think um, a lot of the apartments are by their nature affordable in the context of city living. Manchester is a relatively small city. It's a typical British city. It's not a global city, so it will fit five times inside London's congestion zone. So it's, it's all local and accessible and convenient. To be honest, the more accommodation we have, the more affordable it becomes because it's, it's not a privileged typology anymore. But yeah. there's a real drive within the city council itself to make the accommodation accessible. So that is quite politically driven, and so that we obviously are responding to that. I wanted to talk about the practice. You've, it feels like you've climbed to such giddy heights, and okay, 30, 32 years on, that makes sense. Mm. But 32 years ago, Rachel, you were working, scratching around, basically, for projects, hoping that the phone would ring. Is that right? Uh, that's absolutely right, actually. Very much hoping for the phone to ring. Um, we set up with no work whatsoever, just um, a shared ambition and approach to achieve the best possible architectural output that we could and to be able to control our own destiny, I suppose. And that's debatable as to whether oh, we like do that, or not. I like the idea of controlling <laughs> your own destiny, yes. Yeah, that was our naive ambition. And, yeah, we set out with no work and Ian was teaching at the university. We actually rented a studio before we set up in practice, so we rented it uh, like a competition studio which we went to after work and worked very, very hard. Did and you sleep there as well? I don't think we slept, but we sometimes just went walk, worked through the night and didn't sleep at all, working on competitions and so on, um, endlessly working on competitions and naively always thinking that we were going to win the next one. Of course, that didn't happen, um, but we actually were quite successful um, in co the competitions that we did enter, and we came second in one quite... Um, major national competition and on the way back from the awards ceremony in London we decided we'd set up in practice and next time we would be first. So it was a really incremental growth actually but very exciting and always thinking that around the corner would be the next project that would actually come to fruition. So how about the Atlas Bar? How did that fit in? That wasn't um, a project you won. No, that was the project that we made ourselves actually. In fact that was probably, um, we set up in 87 so Atlas Bar was very, very early 90s Went, and that was our third office. Um, we, we relocated to the area of Knott Mill in Manchester as a result of gaining a commission to work with a group of creatives which comprised um, graphic designer, copywriter, photographer who'd bought into a building and invited us to be the to an additional partner. At the time, we, you know, uh, we just went for it, actually, but... Um, very bad timing because I think Black Wednesday happened very soon after, so the interest rates on the loan that we could hardly afford anyway went up to 16%, and we all agreed that we'd take it in turns to jump out of the top floor. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a hard it was a hard few years, but actually it was a great move, that, because Knott Mill is a really interesting little area of Manchester that keeps being forgotten about in the scheme of the bigger sort of strategic regeneration frameworks that surround it. But it was right early 90s, so there was nothing like the coffee bars or the bars even that now, are, you know, that's the face of Manchester, really, the you know, coffee bars, bars, nightlife and so on, um, in terms of young people. So nothing of that was happening. So we decided, actually, we wanted coffee in the morning, so we'll set it up. So we set up Atlas Bar with um, some friends, Nick, who was a development surveyor, who we were working with on the master plan, so and Jenny, Nick, his partner, Nick Johnson, who became who became the deputy chief exec of Urban Splash, and um, we set up Atlas Bar on our own, and um, 
changed the hours actually we started off at seven o'clock opening with coffee but nobody came in <laughs> a little bit ahead of the time it was it? ahead of the time yeah and um then it became a legend in its own lifetime because everybody was there uh friday saturday night everybody everybody who was part of the manchester scene yeah, at that time the, the musicians artists. yeah factory record people yeah. um property people construct you know everybody in the architectural world the design world creative world and it became a real destination so it was absolutely amazing thing that was created and then actually i think people only really appreciated it when it closed but it was a, it was kind of the first of um of its type yeah. um and really enjoyed being involved well, we with learned that. how to pull beard yeah we, we didn't um, we'd never worked in a bar before actually surprisingly <laughs> enough and i remember we used to have to go there and work after being in the practice during the day and um, literally we didn't know how to pull pints i had to ring back to the office and ask if anybody could help us oh that's great and then we had to cash up at the end of the night so it was a long day Manchester were you actually in the city when the IRA bomb exploded? I was actually in London on that day when it exploded. My my uh, sister was in Albert Square. Um, I think were you in Manchester? I was in Manchester actually and went mm. to help Gillian and mm. removed her from the city actually took her back home. Yeah. It was a yeah, stunning day. I mean absolutely mind-blowing. Um, well, at the time, I wasn't living in the city centre. I was just south of the city centre, and I just received a phone call from Ian's sister saying a bomb had gone off, and I really, I mean, just didn't compute at all, didn't quite know what she was talking about. So she, I just said, well, where are you? Because she was, work, she was working in the Arndale Centre, which was next to the site of the bomb. So she said she was sheltering under a bench in Albert Square, and um, I said, OK, I'm on my way in. So... There was a cordon already around Manchester when I arrived. So I actually drove through the cordon um, down Oxford Road and met her outside a bar um, on Oxford Road and just scooped her up and took her out. But really, we had no idea what had happened. I think it's the biggest bomb that's been exploded on mainland UK, yeah. So in the kind of practice myth, the sort of one that I think of, it was that that catapulted you into major projects as Manchester has regenerated the kind of centre of it kind of being blown apart. Well, um, I think the step that was a really important one for us was to actually win the international competition to replan Manchester after the bomb, which the city were enlightened enough to think about replanning the city rather than just rebuilding what was already there and take that as an opportunity to open up to the north in particular and we gathered a team of people around us and we came up with a concept of creating what became new cathedral street um, it did mean we had to move two listed buildings that had already been moved when they because of um, the 50s and the 60s shambles development around it but we took the decision to relocate those to us that was a really important move and um it, we were successful. I can remember the announcement in the Bridgewater Hall, and uh, there's a picture of me jumping up in the air when we when we we won that competition. Do you still feel that elation? I st it was a massive elation because it was a big step for us as a practice. We went on then to to not to do all the buildings, but to work with the city council to try and. Um, encourage the landowners to rethink how they might reimagine the sites and the buildings on them. And that 
in, in, involved Harvey Nichols and Selfridges and introducing high-quality retail into an area that didn't exist before. So out of that spun another competition for um, what was called Urbis, which, uh, um, again, we were thought that was a completely anonymous competition. And uh, we I mean, won that. Was a, we won that was that. an amazing building. It seemed, yeah. it seemed so special in the city. It's still my favourite building, I think, that we've designed. And it was very important to us at the time. A new build building that has been flexible enough, and that's how it was designed, um, to adjust to all sorts of things. And now it's a football museum and it's, it's very successful what, attracting what people. This, what did the designs grow out of? The brief originally was to put a building in the middle of the site and we decided to edge the site and create a new public space which became Cathedral Gardens. But then we clad the whole building in, in two layers of glass so that it could deal with soul again and become a very sustainable building in terms of, of, of heat gain and so on. You've got an amazing ski slope of a building yeah. with a funicular lift yeah. in it that is right at the centre of Manchester and the yeah. regeneration, a kind of visible symbol of your work on the yes. city. Did that make a difference to the practice? I think it did make a, a massive difference. A, it gave the city confidence that we were passionate about what we did and we would follow through on the detail. And we were working with Langerock on the construction of that on behalf of the city. But also from that became came another project, which was number one, Deansgate. And as part of the master plan, we always envisaged that there would be residential within the rebuilt city centre. And at the time, you've got to remember that the agents didn't really like anything sitting over retail. It sort of devalued the retail. Now we see mixed-use buildings as, as commonplace in our cities. In terms of major new build within the city centre, Urbis and Number One were the, were the two first. The other projects And they were, were moving together simultaneously. I mean, it was amazing just walking around at lunchtime, yeah. looking at them both on site. It was so exciting. We've actually spent probably half our lives working on um, existing buildings and listed buildings, including the town hall extension that we won over the recession period, which was a very important project to us. So that town hall extension, I mean, is very interesting. The library was done up at the same time. Yeah. You kind yeah. of joined the library yeah. to the town hall yeah. and made a new way through yeah. between them. And that's another little piece of, of kind of changing the centre of Manchester. It's not just a straightforward commercial project, is it? I really enjoyed that, and I, I very much threw myself into that little library walk link. Whilst it wasn't a commercial building, there are obviously massive co commercial constraints on delivering a project and not letting it overrun. I think that's been very successful, that building. That was a fantastic project for us to win and a really key milestone in our development because actually we won that at the end of 2009 in that very, very difficult period of time. And simultaneously, we won a new concert hall in Antwerp. Those two projects came in in December 2009 and they were absolutely key projects for us uh, in terms of survival as a practice. So a few years ago, we wouldn't have even known that you were a founding partner without having <laughs> someone kind of talked to the practice in depth. Why did you finally change the name to Simpson Huff? We wanted to reward that um, level of contribution and commitment. Equally, at that point, it became very apparent that my contribution and involvement with the practice was important to recognise as well. Did that seem important to you in the world? Did it make a difference to how people reacted to you? Um, yes, it did make a difference to how people reacted to me, which was quite intriguing, actually, because 
for me, I didn't think it was going to make a difference. Obviously, the practice name was Ian Simpson Architects. Ian and, and I have always been 50-50 partners from the start. And I suppose that's kind of inbuilt in my psyche that, you know, I kind of thought everyone else thought that, but they didn't. I suppose that made my position much more visible and understandable. And I think that was helpful. Um, For example, at meetings, I think as a woman, you know, I think you're received in a different way anyway. And perhaps because my status or role wasn't understood, it wasn't an understanding that I was senior within the practice. And... I think that's made it clear. I think it's been a really beneficial move for me personally um, to have that recognition, but also for the practice because architecture isn't a one-man band. Well, what's quite interesting is that one of the reasons Rachel really didn't want her name out there is that she's quite uh, reticent about coming forward. I mean, she's quite private, whereas I, I don't mind giving my... Uh, view about certain things but what's started to happen now is that Rachel is starting to share that a lot more she's been invited onto juries she's been invited as examiner at Bath she's on design review panels things that I would normally be on <laughs> so, um, actually Ian's getting a bit worried now he's feeling a bit threatened <laughs> <laughs> I'm, but I'm, I'm quite happy to, to see that shared. We have a good proportion of women in the practice and we don't differentiate at all between male and female. And, and for that to be acknowledged within the name was important. I think it's really helped you actually expand your confidence in a way and your experience at dealing with an, an external audience. I think it has. And I think that I suppose that's what I was trying to communicate. The way people receive you is quite interesting and, and it does affect how you feel about yourself. It kind of undermines you if, if you're not received in the way that perhaps you might feel you should be. Yeah, that, that is very interesting. I like the idea that you might not have had views before, but you have them now. <laughs> I'm guessing that you did have some secretly tucked away. But <laughs> So in the 90s, you opened up a London office. Yeah. That must have made your lives more complicated. Well, why, just... why do that? Well, I think um, we've always loved London and we thought we needed to to explore the opportunity of of working across the country and internationally. It doesn't matter really that we're doing most of the big buildings in Manchester, you're still felt and considered a very provincial practice in that respect. I don't mind that but equally we thought there were opportunities of getting involved in some exciting projects in London and they were all project driven and then we were able to ourselves forward as a a London practice that could design and build projects that were London-based and you know we were successful winning the Battersea Power Station first phase and working with our Liverpool client designing one Blackfriars before the recession. The ability to be able to work in London and Manchester simultaneously has been a very positive thing because the two cities work at different speeds in many ways and we found very much that we can move things very quickly in Manchester through the planning process and then it takes time to get the project delivered because of viability and end values. Whereas in London, the planning process is a, is a slow process and it can take a long time, but you know that the values will, will sustain the building being built. So I'm quite fascinated by that thing about planning. So you have the kind of slowness of planning also in Manchester sometimes. 
was thinking of your powers for Freddie Flintoff, Arundel Street. Yeah. Where you refuse first time, you've just got yeah. it through. You've got, just got through a quite a different design. Yeah. How is it going back to redesign things? Do you go to first principles? Do you? Do you just tinker around the edges? I think on the Arundel side, I th- we not only listened to the client in the, the taller of the glass buildings that we designed was actually marginal in terms of value. How high was that? It was about 32 stories 32 or something story, like yeah. that. 35, I think. 35. But also, and this is something that we're spending a lot of time and energy on, is actually we ourselves as a practice are starting to engage much more with the community. We feel it's important to understand what the issues are with the local communities and try and address those through design. And Arundel Street's a very good example where Rachel and the team spent a lot of time working with... Britannia Basin Community Forum, yeah. As a group, understanding them, presenting to them and taking on board what, what their concerns were. It was quite an intriguing process, actually, because the, the normal consultation process that one goes through is quite rigid. We engaged with the Britannia Basin Community Forum in a really positive and constructive way and invited them into the office and had workshops there with the client because they had been quite vocal in the planning committee meeting and tried to understand what their concerns were and what their aspirations and ambitions were for the area and for the building. And actually, they were very similar to ours. It was incredible that actually they just wanted the best possible thing to come out of the process. But they were really interested in the detail, I suppose, at the groundscape and the way that the the building addressed the street and placemaking aspects. We really enjoyed it, and it was a really positive, constructive process. I think that was a very good process. example of collaboration. Yeah, that, so I think too. rather than having... I mean, obviously it was working with a very constructive group of people, and I hope that we can do it again, but it was it was a different approach that stepped outside of the norm in terms of the standard planning-led approach. So I'd like to do that again. It was very collaborative and very positive. I think the difference... And, the difference in, in Manchester, though, is, is very much that there's a general feeling of support, embracing change, embracing investment, whether that's the city council, but also individuals work, living and working in the city. They know change. They want change. I think that's the complete opposite to working in London, where it's extremely difficult to make change because why should they? They're a world-class global city. I think it's difficult when you have 32 different boroughs, yeah. each with their own agenda, each with their own view. I'm not sure if it all goes along with the same thing, but it, it feels like Manchester's become very important to British architecture. Many practices now opening up their own offices yeah. there. Also, uh, obviously, you've got OMA building there and, and yeah. other international practices. Do you feel they're on your turf? As I say, I, I don't really think of competition. If there is a competition, let the best man win. I don't mind that at all. And I'd, quite often, if we can get a richer palette of buildings and public spaces and design responses and I think the city will benefit from that we play our part and other practices can play theirs I mean I I don't see it as competition you've said you're trying to create truly sustainable buildings and you've signed up to Architects Declare what changes are you making to deliver on the commitments of Architects Declare on every project we're working on now we're pushing the boundaries in terms of the sustainability question and whether it's an office trying to push it from being excellent to pre-am excellent to outstanding. What are the implications of that? Working with clients to achieve that. Designing buildings that, office buildings that are all about well-being as well as just work. One of the things we're desperate to see, I am, is, is the intensification of people 
again, London doesn't need that. It's got millions and millions of people living in it and visitors, whereas Manchester doesn't. It, it, the, the visitor numbers are increasing all the time and the residential population is increasing all the time. And I think in 25, 30 years, there'll be a, a density of, of population there that will make the, the city vibrant and active and sustainable as, a, as, as an entity from, from living, working, playing, uh, without having engage or, or live in other parts of the greater Manchester economy. 30 plus years of practice, what's next? Is there a building or a type, a place that you would like to be working? To be honest, we just really like making a difference in cities where change matters. And I think you look at a city like Manchester, we brought new populations, created new neighbourhoods, public parks, buildings... Great Jackson Street has 6,500 new homes. That's 15,000 people potentially living in a new area. And we want to be part of that. We want to try and change the perception of a place and in doing so, make it a much more enjoyable place for people to live and work and attract investment. I'm not really that interested in the, the, the individual jewellery box project. It's more about the place making than the setting. And within that, creating quality buildings in which the residents or the office occupiers really enjoy themselves and, and are supported by the architecture. It seems a long way from what you were doing in the early days, Rachel. Well, it, it is, but it takes a long time to get there. We've grown very incrementally over the years and it's very exciting to be at this point now. And actually, as Ian said, we feel like we're just at the beginning and we're very excited about the future and we just like the opportunity to continue to try and make a difference you know, wherever we can and wherever we feel the challenge is appropriate. Rachel, Ian, thank you very much and thanks for coming on Reba Jenkins. Pleasure. Thank you very much.